Human beings are funny things, aren't they? If there are nine things going well and one is not, they'll fixate on that one thing. They won't enjoy the blessing of the nine. And if there's a long journey ahead, they want the shortcut, don't they? And when things get tough, they complain and moan about their circumstances. But then when things get really tough, they surprise you by rolling up their sleeves and becoming diligent. And then when things are going easy again, they relax. They don't worry so much about being diligent and careful. They behave as if the tough times never happened, or at least as if those tough times will never be back. Does any of this sound familiar? It's a pattern we see all too often throughout human history. Good morning, everyone. My name is Narelle Kostick, and it's my pleasure to continue our Building Up series this morning with this passage from Ezra. The Old Testament is full of stories where God's people are obedient and diligent in their relationship with God, and things go well for them. Then they get a bit arrogant, a bit self-assured, and they start to take it easy. They don't pay so much attention to God's ways. They get complacent. Then... Surprisingly, not. Things start to turn nasty. Things start to go against them. And they start to moan and complain. And then when it gets unbearable, finally they call out to God for his grace and his mercy. Then the real work starts of repenting and turning from their complacency and once again honouring God with obedient diligence. This story plays out over and over and over again. There are times, especially when reading the book of Judges, where I feel like I've been reading the same chapter over and over because the same pattern plays out repeatedly, though under different rulers. And so here we are again with an all too familiar tale. The Israelites have lived through captivity at the hand of the Babylonians for 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, they've been allowed to return to their homeland and rebuild. In God's good grace, which they acknowledge at the time, They have found favour through the Persian King Cyrus, who frees them to return to their promised land to rebuild their nation. Some of them have already returned to the task of rebuilding under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And now we find Ezra in a bit of a pickle, don't we? Last week, we heard about Ezra's mission. He was commissioned by King Artaxerxes. And from chapter 7 of Ezra, we read, You, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. Ezra was a descendant of Aaron in the line of the Levitical priests, as well as being known as a scribe of the law of Moses, so it was fitting that he was chosen for this role. King Artaxerxes also decrees that the royal treasury is to financially support Ezra through gifts of silver, wine, wheat, oil and salt, and that Ezra can take with him whomever wants to return to Jerusalem. The king also returns to him temple items that were stolen during the plunder of of Jerusalem during the captivity from Babylon. And he provides special exemption from taxes for those whose work is in service to the temple and its its, um, rebuilding and service. So you might well ask at this point, why would a pagan king go to such lengths? Well, luckily, King Artaxerxes tells us himself. He says, whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath 
fall on the realm of the king and his sons. King Artaxerxes seems to understand how important it is to honour God and keep his commands. He understands that the God of Israel is longing for a pure people who will turn their hearts towards him in honour and obedience. And so from our passage, we see Ezra arrive in Jerusalem. But if Ezra expected things to be very different among the Jews, now that he was back in the promised land, he was about to be very disappointed. For they too, like their fellow Jews in Babylon, had lost their sense of divine calling and become absorbed through intermarriage into the life of the pagan nations around them. From our reading in verses 1 and 2, we see Ezra say, The leaders of the people came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices. Ezra was devastated when he was told of the people's unfaithfulness, especially to learn that the priests and the Levites had led the way in this act of spiritual betrayal. Ezra was beside himself with grief. And it says, so when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, which is usually reserved for grief in mourning, and plucked out some of the hair of my head and my beard and sat down astonished. He's so grief-stricken, he literally pulls his own hair out of his head and out of his beard. He could hardly believe what he is hearing. But I can imagine that there might be some people who would describe this response as maybe being a bit over the top. Why the overreaction, you might ask? But that would completely misunderstand the nature and gravity of the offence. In the first place, Ezra was not upset because the Jews had married into relationships with people from other nations, but because of the blatant disregard for God by those who were spending their efforts rebuilding his temple. The people in Jerusalem were serving God with their hands, but betraying him with their lives. And so he says, but now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. And so it is for us in our day, when very much of the lure of the world is all about being independent and self-made and feeling little responsibility, even for your own sins. So it might strike us as strange that anyone would feel such personal guilt and pain over the sins of others as demonstrated by Ezra here. A more common reaction might be a feeling of smug satisfaction, like the Pharisee who thanked God that he was not as sinful as the tax collector. But in Ezra's confession here, he identifies himself with his countrymen. His his shame is of their transgressions as if it was his own. He is ashamed for their misconduct. His sense of responsibility for the sins of others is appropriate in this regard. And this becomes clear when we remember that we as God's people are an organism that works like the human body. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. All their sins he appears to consider as his sin. Their disobedience disobedience as his disobedience. 
He views it as a great trespass and one that has grown up to the heavens, which is the equivalent of a complete forsaking of God's commands and on account of which he and his people cannot stand before God. This feeling seems partly based on the nature of the sin itself, but also on a strong sense of the ingratitude shown by the people of God in turning from him so soon after he's forgiven their former sins against him and allowed them to return to the, from the captivity to rebuild the temple, re-establish themselves as a nation. If after all this they fell away again, the punishment to be expected was a final and complete uprooting and destruction from which there can be no recovery. Later in the chapter we see Ezra say, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the people who committed such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us with no remnant and no survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant here before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. The reason Ezra is so upset about the foreign marriages is because of such pagan alliances meant that the people had broken their covenant with God once again. A God who had called them out from among all the nations on earth to be his special people and to be a regenerating element in the world. Had these marriages continued with these idolatrous wives, the Jews would have eventually become absorbed into the pagan nations around them and God's purpose would have been frustrated. Israel was meant to be a separated people and so Ezra was right to react the way he did. And again, there's surely a lesson for us in all of this, for God's people in this church today. For the same call to a life of separation applies to us as it did to the people of Ezra's time. Writing to the Corinthian Christians, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with the darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement can there be between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from the world and be separate, says the Lord. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, the Lord Jesus in his prayer recorded in John 17 says when he's praying for his disciples, I do not pray, Father, that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from its evil practices. Christians are to be separate. Even though we have to work and live in this fallen world every day, we are to be part of the world, sorry, in the world, but not part of it. To align ourselves with the world would mean that the corrosive impact of worldliness will quickly erase the marks of Christ's grace in us. Yet the sad truth is that we see this worldly spirit and attitude creeping more and more into the church every day, with compromises and justifications diluting the effect that we as Christians are able to have on the world around us. But the whole emphasis of the gospel, surely, is to show that we are to be different, very different from the attitudes and opinions prevailing in society. Our Lord Jesus was so different from the prevailing behaviours and attitudes and opinions of his day 
that they killed him for it. Are we willing to be that different? That separate from the world? That we're prepared prepared to pay that cost? Ezra's strong reaction to the people's sin, seen in the tearing of his garments and the plucking of hair, appears to have had an immediate effect on the Israelites around him. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. Scripture is clear in its intent for our collective instruction and building up. Learning from past sinfulness is intended to change our present behaviour. As we understand the sinfulness of the human heart and our collective call for holiness, it changes the way that we relate to each other and the world. And so the remainder of this chapter from verse 5 on is about Ezra's prayer of intercession for his people. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, clearly a sign of submission. The prayer that follows is deeply moving. It is an intercessory prayer for others, which is a very powerful ministry and one which is encouraged by the Bible for us to engage in. Intercessory prayer is a powerful weapon in the armoury of God's people, especially when it's wielded collectively by a group of Christians who between them can call down all the power of heaven. Not only is it a powerful prayer weapon, but it's also a secret one. No matter what the world may throw at us or what others demand of us, what they cannot do is stop us from praying for them. And they don't even need to know that we're doing it. When we come to the prayer itself, we notice, first of all, Ezra's approach to God is humble and contrite. He says, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. He doesn't lay the blame on the heathens for the intermarriages. It was the people of God that he blames for mixing with the heathens. It was they who had the light and the knowledge of God's truth and therefore the responsibility of living up to that truth fell squarely on their shoulders. Every person is responsible for his or her own behaviour before God. We cannot go making excuses or putting a blame on others as happened in the fall when Adam blamed the woman and the woman blamed the serpent. Just pass it on down the line. It doesn't work like that. This shifting of responsibility is characteristic of today's society, however. Man can see himself as the victim of his environment and use that as an excuse for his behaviour. He even blames God when it suits his argument. But none of that negates the fact that his behaviour can and does have an impact on our broader society. The sins of one reflect on the whole. There is personal responsibility but a corporate impact of our sin. I'd like to share a a personal story of where this played out in my life when I was very, very early in my Christian faith. Mark and I were engaged to be married and I was living in a share house with a girlfriend called Wendy and Mark lived in a share house with a group of people and we were on opposite sides of Melbourne. And so from time to time when we would catch up, go out for dinner or whatever, Mark would stay the night at my house. Now, just to be clear, there was a futon in the lounge room and he slept on the futon. However, what happened back at the house was people would contact the house looking for Mark and be told he's staying at Norell's. And one of the people in the house, who was also a Christian, came to me and he said, I want you guys to think about what you're doing. 
And I, of course, got a bit indignant. We know exactly what we're doing, thank you very much, and there's nothing untoward about it. Mind your own business. It's got nothing to do with you. And he said, well, actually, it does have something to do with the rest of us because there are people who are looking for Mark being told he's staying at Norell's. And people will assume the worst of that scenario. And you can't go running around explaining to everybody in the society that you're not doing anything because it looks like you are. Even if you're not, it looks like you are. Now, I must admit, in the moment, I was actually quite annoyed with Matthew for, the, for bringing this to me because we were clear we hadn't done anything wrong. However, by the time we'd finished the conversation and Mark and I talked afterwards, we realised that there were other young couples that would have been looking to us as an example of behaviour. So we went to our pastor at the time, we explained the whole scenario to him, we told him what other people will have seen, and we committed not to do that again until we were married. So from that moment on, Mark didn't stay the night. We managed our lives so that we could finish what we were doing, dinner or whatever it was, and go home without being so tired that we felt we couldn't manage that process. I was very grateful to Matthew for his correction. Now, that couldn't have happened if we weren't in community with each other and had a relationship which allowed him to speak into my life. There's a further emphasis in this passage that in spite of our sin and guilt and our failure to honour God, he is merciful and gracious to his people. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape to give us a place in his holy land that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. He extended his mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now there's a few times where Ezra specifically mentions the remnant and I think it's worth spending a little bit of time looking at the numbers here. Bible scholars have estimated there are approximately one million Israelites at the time of the Babylonian captivity and the fall of Jerusalem. And some of them would have died during battle. Some of them may have died on the long journey back to Babylon from Jerusalem. But it's clear in this passage that not all of the Jews want to return to Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 2, we are told that only around 50,000 people return with Zerubbabel when Cyrus frees them to go back to rebuild. And now with Ezra, some 60 to 80 years later, fewer than 5,000 return. So out of a million people of the nation of, of, of Israel at the time of their captivity, only 55,000 return to rebuild. Now several factors would have been involved in the decision to remain in Babylon. Some Jews would have been too old to return. It had been 70 years since the destruction, plus some time after that. Then there were many who wouldn't have been able to enjoy the the journey. It was a 900-mile journey. The same would have been true for people with young families or people who were sick. You could probably forgive them and give them an excuse, a a suitable justification. Some of the Jews probably refused to go due to the comfort of Babylon. Many of them will have established themselves during the exile and they knew nothing else. Some of them would have been born in Babylon and not ever known the Promised Land. And some of them would have attained a significant status under the reign of Cyrus, and they were comfortable. Another reason some of them would not have returned was a concern for personal safety. The road to Jerusalem and the land of Judea were fraught with peril. In fact, Ezra led those with him in a time of prayer and fasting for safety for their journey. It was a journey that was considered fast 
because it only took four months. And unfortunately, some Jews were living in direct disobedience to God at the time and as a result would not have sensed the need to return to Jerusalem. Finally, another reason some of the Jews elected not to return was simply the amount of work it would have taken to re-establish the nation of Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have to be rebuilt and it was not an easy, easy challenge. Rebuilding a city and the walls would have taken a lot of work and they were unwilling to sacrifice in order to honour God. It reminds me of the parable of the sower and the seed. We are warned. The cares of the world, bright shiny things, distractions, they can pull us away from God. And the Bible tells us that the road to the kingdom of heaven is narrow and few will find it. Few will even be bothered looking for it. So this pattern is just as much a danger for us today. It can be difficult to resist the gravitational pull of the things of the world and away from the things of God, especially as it seems there are fewer and fewer people giving themselves, committing their lives to Christ. But take hope. As we have seen, a remnant can make a difference and become a mighty force for God. The book of Ezra is a chronicle of hope and restoration as God's people return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple repenting of their sins, rededicating their lives, restoring their marriages and their families, reforming their laws and renewing their worship for their Lord. God graciously responds by pouring out blessings upon them. Ezra is well aware that were it not for God's mercy and grace, they would not be back in the Holy Land and nor would the temple have been rebuilt. And he tells God in that present crisis, it's his grace alone that they can look to. How right he is, for where would any of us be without the grace of God? It was through grace that we are saved and it's by his grace that we're kept in our Christian faith. If we're perfectly honest, we have to confess we are often poor material for God to work with. And the meaning of grace in the context of scripture is the free and unmerited love of God. For the Christian believer, every day brings its own challenges to our faith, but there's always a fresh supply of God's grace to see us through. When our faith is weak, grace strengthens us. When we're discouraged or depressed, grace can lift us up. When our hearts grow cold, grace warms us with the fire of God. And so what can we do today for us in our church and our nation? Well, firstly, I would suggest we read the Bible. It's the best way to know the heart of God. How can you keep God's laws and commands and honour him with your obedience if you don't know what his heart is about? Ezra's role as teacher of the word of God and the scribe of the law of Moses meant that he could be trusted to know the law of God. We need to stay connected to God and to his people. Those around Ezra were suitably suitably concerned for the sins of their countrymen and in prayerful trembling about the implications for their nation. They had in mind their relationship with God and his kingdom. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else you need will fall into place. God wants his people to have their hearts set on things that matter to him and to be in community with one another, to hold each other to account. You can only do that if you have proximity of relationship. Matthew could not have spoken into my life the way he did if we did not already have a personal relationship. We need to be willing to be corrected. We later see in Ezra that the result of Ezra's prayer and confession was others join him in weeping for their nation. An oath was taken to send away all the foreign women and children in accordance with the counsel of the leaders and in fear of the commands of God. 
Ezra commands the people to honour the Lord your God of your ancestors and to do his will. And surprisingly, at this point, there's no record of complaining or justification. The people knew it was the right thing to do and so agree to a proclamation issued to systematically deal with each household. They were willing to be corrected. And finally, we need to grieve for our sins and repent. Turn away from worldly worldly pleasure and practices and turn back to the ways of God in order to be purified. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Certainly our modern world is not concerned or worried about its sins. Instead, under the influence of popular psychology, people are told not to burden themselves with any sense of guilt or wrongdoing because that will only add to their stress and perhaps affect their low self-esteem. In other words, we are fast becoming a no-fault, no-blame society in which self-analysis is confused with self-excuses. But all this is far removed from the Bible's view of sin and guilt. It clearly states all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all to blame, therefore, in the sense that we are all guilty before God. We need to have a profound hatred of sin and to see it for what it really is, a radical alienation of God, from God and his truth. And we should be as distressed as Ezra was when we ourselves are guilty of it. And when we see the violence and corruption that the sinful heart of man inflicts on our world. We are called to be Christ's ambassadors, a holy priesthood, his bride upon his return. We can influence his world and the world around us if we allow his spirit to renew us, transform us and fill us to overflowing. Let us be his pure people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves up to you this morning. We pray that you will help us to know the heart of God, to seek a relationship with him above all else, to seek his kingdom, to see his will be done here on earth. And Lord, we pray that you help each one of us to become pure through your grace, your forgiveness and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.